Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. You can also check out my blog, and that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, so today is Thursday, August 19th. And we're talking about the Constitutional Committee's work in aligning the responsibilities of the NCAA with its authorities. And we've looked at both sides of that coin. And I want to look at it today in the context of a specific case. And I think this Constitutional Committee really came into existence in part because of this case. And that is the Baylor University Public Infractions Decision that was released on August 11th, just last week. And that decision was controversial in large part because it let Baylor off the hook or was perceived as letting Baylor off the hook for some really bad conduct that occurred in the early 210s, really 2010 to about 2014. And I'm gonna describe the history of the case here in just a second. And it was controversial in the same way that the Penn State scandal was controversial and the NCAA's involvement in that from an enforcement infraction standpoint. And then the UNC academic case in uh, 2017, which drew a lot of criticism. And then the Michigan State case in 2018, in which former athletics department doctor Larry Nasser was accused of sexually assaulting athletes. And now we have the Baylor case. And all four of those cases raise fundamental questions about what authority the NCAA should have in the regulation of intercollegiate athletics. And as these four cases illustrate, and as the Commission on College Basketball discussed in its analysis of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process, the NCAA has been wildly inconsistent and has played two sides of a coin. One side of the coin is limiting its responsibility and its authority purposefully to areas that impact the NCAA's commercial interest. And those go to regulating the labor pool, the cost of labor, and talent acquisition, the competitive advantage, disadvantage market. And those are the only areas in which the NCAA actually legislates. And as the Baylor decision makes very clear, and I think they do a good job of this, they say, wait a minute, we can't take any enforcement and infractions action against an institution unless there is actual specific legislation that can be the basis of an investigation and an enforcement action. And in the absence of that legislation, there's nothing that we can do. And then the other obstacle that the Baylor Committee on Infractions team faced is a limitation that is relevant to all these other cases as well, particularly the UNC case, because this was an issue there. And that is that even if there is NCAA legislation that you may be able to hang your hat on to support an an enforcement and infractions action and a rules violation and possible penalties, if those issues are present university-wide and not limited to the athletics department, 
then you don't have jurisdiction for that reason. And that is because the NCAA regulates intercollegiate athletics. It is not a omniscient body that has the authority outside of the specific rules that it passes and within the subset of the university community comprised of athletics. And that is a limitation that I think has become obscured by the NCAA's propaganda. So the problem that the two sides of this coin, you have the legislation side, you have the limitations there. But other side of that coin is the reasonable belief that most external observers have that the NCAA should be regulating in areas that relate to academic misconduct at the institutional level and ensuring a safe campus environment, both for athletes and non-athletes. And the reason that that is a reasonable belief is that the NCAA, really almost for 70 years, since the beginning of the Walter Byers years in the 1950s, has been propagandizing false values that it never had any intention of protecting in NCAA legislation or enforcing through NCAA enforcement and infractions procedures. And all of those lofty principles, which have real market value, they are commodities in the marketplace in the 21st century, are set forth in the NCAA constitution. And you would think, my gosh, if they're in the constitution, then they have to be enforceable. And the answer to that is no. Because the NCAA hasn't passed a single piece of legislation supporting any of those constitutional principles. And that is the fatal flaw in the NCAA regulatory model. And it has been exposed time and time and time again, but not until the summer of 2021, in the middle of this perfect storm, which has put the NCAA in a position of weakness that has never experienced, is the NCAA for the first time coming out and saying what has been true for decades. And that is that all these lofty principles in the NCAA constitution have no practical enforceable value. And the areas that the NCAA chooses to regulate are geared exclusively to preserving its business model and its revenue streams. That's it. And now the NCAA has nowhere to hide. And this Baylor case is a perfect illustration of that. So I want to set the table just a little bit for this analysis that's contained in the report by giving a bit of a timeline of how this all played out. So this conduct relates back to the early uh, 2010s. And there were allegations then, sexual assaults committed by Baylor football players. And it generated a lot of media scrutiny and increasing scrutiny. And those related to not just sexual assault, but also non-sexual physical assault and basically violence against women. In 2014, Baylor, as a preemptive move, hired an external consultant named Margolis Healy. And it is a company that consults in regulatory compliance with an emphasis on higher education. It's not a law firm. So they come in and they do a review. It's kind of a systems review of whatever it is they're being asked to take a look at. And they were looking at Baylor's Title IX compliance program. Margolis Healy found pretty quickly that there were real problems because there really wasn't a Title IX compliance program. They didn't even have a full-time Title IX compliance officer. So there was a problem with educating and training employees on Title IX, and they found a particular weakness in the training of people in the athletics department. So Baylor hired its first uh, full-time Title IX coordinator in 2014. 
In 2015, a Texas jury found a Baylor football player guilty of sexually assaulting a female student. And that, again, received a lot of publicity. And then Baylor goes into damage control mode. And the president at the time, I think this was from 2010 to 2016, was Ken Starr, a former federal judge and a former independent counsel in the Clinton case back in the 90s. But Starr asks his faculty athletics representative to, to do something, launch an internal investigation. And the faculty athletics representative, that's a term of art unique to NCAA lingo and is contained in the NCAA Division I manual. And it is a designated person at each university that is essentially a liaison, a faculty liaison between the academic side and the athletic side, you know, buying into this notion that there are these two separate worlds. And the faculty athletics representative hired an outside law firm, Pepper Hamilton, to conduct a review of some of the issues that were raised in this Margolis Healy report and then that came out of this criminal case in 2015. And the approach that Baylor was taking here with Pepper Hamilton is very similar to what the NCAA did with this Kaplan firm in the gender equity inquiry. And this is a common tactic. I talked about that when I, I did my first episode on that Kaplan report. But this is investigate yourself and you have control of the process and the people are reporting to you and it is not an adversary proceeding. It's not a proceeding at all. So in May of 2016, Pepper Hamilton comes back and says, yeah, we have enough information to make some recommendations. And they meet with the university's board of regents and he, they issue a verbal report. Interestingly, there is not a written report. And according to reports, and this is also contained in the uh, Committee on Infractions decision. So they do a, a procedural history and a factual history. Some of what I'm telling you comes from their timeline, but they say that the Board of Regents was horrified by what they heard from Pepper Hamilton. And then in, in 2016, around the same time, the Board of Regents issues its own written report based on Pepper Hamilton's verbal briefing. And they find, quote, institutional failures at every level of Baylor's administration, as well as specific findings within the football program that found, quote, athletics and football personnel affirmatively chose not to report sexual violence and dating violence to an appropriate administrator outside athletics and took improper steps in response to disclosure of sexual assault or dating violence. That's not good. And then later, that same month, in May of 2016, the Board of Regents, quote unquote, removed the president. So they basically demoted Ken Starr. They suspended the athletics director and they suspended the head coach, a guy named Art Bryles, who he cut some corners. There was no question about that. That was his MO. And Baylor knew that. Well, they hired him. They, they knew that. And that's a whole nother conversation. But you had a lot going on there in 2016. The wall started to crumble in 2016. And Baylor was really on the ropes because what they had done here at the institutional level, and again, this is university-wide, there was just a complete failure up and down the chain of command. And that is a university issue. That is a higher education issue. And this happens routinely. And the only 
cases we hear about are these cases that come out of the sporting context, interestingly. But that's another level of analysis and probably another conversation. But this is a higher education failure, top to bottom. And so then you have some external regulators coming in to take a look. So you have the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. They get involved. They do an investigation. Then you have uh, Baylor's Accreditation Agency. It's the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. And all of these uh, big-time schools, actually all universities, in order to be accredited, they have people come in every seven years or so, and they do a, a review, and they look at documents, and they meet with people, and it's basically a checkup. You know, it's a seven-year checkup to see how the systems are going, and schools take that seriously. This was not in the context of a normal review process. Sachs came in specifically to look at these allegations of, of sexual misconduct and violence. And then you had the Texas Rangers getting involved, and they did an investigation. And then another law firm got involved to do an external review, and that was Cozen O'Connor. And then the Big 12. So Baylor's a member of the Big 12. And the Big 12 came in and they started swinging their hammer and they issued fines to Baylor totaling about $18 million. And they were required to return some of the revenue that had been distributed. So Baylor is getting a lot of external scrutiny and they're having to suffer financially. And then in 2016, around the same time, Baylor then goes to the NCAA to disclose and discuss potential violations. So the NCAA and Baylor then begin what the decision describes as, quote unquote, a cooperative investigation. I, I'm not quite sure what the hell that means, honestly. And then we're getting into the actual NCAA process. So it's important to note that this begins in 2016, and then the decision isn't released until August of 2021. And on September 6th of 2018, over two years after Baylor and the NCAA are talking and the investigation begins, you have the notice of allegations come out. And those are the areas that the enforcement staff believes may constitute NCAA rules violations. And there were really five broad categories, and I'm just going to go through them quickly, and then I'm going to focus really on only one of them for purposes of analyzing the report. The first is that Baylor mishandled the allegations of sexual interpersonal violence on campus, and that really related to non-reporting within the football program. So there were several allegations of sexual assault that the Committee on Infractions identified, but they were really more outside of this. They only focused on three. And they were serious. There was an alleged sexual assault of a women's volleyball player. And you say alleged because this is how the report characterizes it. And the alleged physical assault of a football player's ex-girlfriend. And then with another football player, there was an alleged gun threat made to, to his girlfriend. And then the second major category was the football program's intervention into the student conduct process, and then also a question about whether they improperly paid a parking fine for a player. And there were allegations of preferential treatment in the student conduct context, and they specifically looked into the appeals process. And there was an allegation that some football players were given 
lenience that the regular student might not get. And there was even some intervention by a member of the board of regents after conversations with the head coach to do something on an appeal for a particular athlete. And then the next category was that Baylor failed to withhold athletes from competition after positive drug tests. And the fourth thing was that the Baylor had improper oversight over a student host program where they have a group of mostly female hosts who take recruits around. And a lot of schools do that. It's kind of offensive on its face for a variety of reasons, but the NCAA actually regulates in that area. And Baylor didn't follow the proper procedures for those uh, students. Then the fifth category they identified was that the assistant operations director in the football program refused to cooperate in the investigation. And when he was called to provide evidence and then to testify at the hearing, he, he declined. And that is an independent process crime under NCAA rules violations. And so they nailed him to the cross on that. But those are the five main categories. But I'm going to focus in my evaluation of the report just on this, how they handled the sexual and interpersonal violence issues and the non-reporting issues, because that really goes to the heart of institutional control and goes to really, I think, the heart of what people saw as so offensive about the NCAA's refusal to act here. And when we look at the NCAA legislation that the Committee on Infractions used to try to fit this sexual violence and assault issue into, you, you really see how inadequate NCAA legislation is. And it's really almost cringeworthy reading the report and seeing how they are analyzing this bylaw that they try to apply to conduct, which has virtually nothing to do with that bylaw. And that's bylaw 16 on extra benefits. And that, those relate purely to financial benefits. And the NCAA has tried to twist that conceptually to try to bring in all of these things that are hot button issues that have absolutely nothing to do with bylaw 16. That is where the uh, Committee on Infractions had the land to try to come up with a way to hold Baylor and the football program accountable. So in connection with this timeline, I want to note a couple of things, and that is we're into 2018. And in September of 2018, when this process began, that was a month after the NCAA's August meeting where they vote on bringing in new legislation. And it was at that meeting that the NCAA incorporated into its rule book some of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball because they had completed their work in April of 2018, just a few months earlier. And as of August 8th of 2018, some of these beefed up enforcement tools were in place, like the importation rule that allowed the NCAA to just wholesale bring in findings from other investigatory bodies and decision-making bodies and review bodies. And that's important. And we'll talk about that in just a second, because the committee actually relies on that to defend some of the delays in this process. Then in January of 2019, just, I don't know, what is that, five months after the notice of allegations, Baylor and the head coach, this guy Bryles, submitted their responses to all these allegations. And then in April of 2019, a few months later, the NCAA enforcement staff comes back and then replies to the Baylor response. And then 
another important and interesting thing happens. Just a couple of months later, in August of 2019, the NCAA enacts this independent accountability resolution process. So as of August of 2019, that independent process that the Commission on College Basketball insisted was absolutely necessary to restore integrity to the infractions and enforcement process was available as a tool in this Baylor case. Just a couple of months later, in October of 2019, the chair of the Committee on Infractions felt that this case, this Baylor case, met the criteria for referral to the independent accountability resolution process and formally submitted a referral petition to the infractions referral committee. And I talked about that in the last episode. This infractions referral committee is designed to determine whether or not a case meets the criteria they set forth for the jurisdiction of this new independent process that was specifically designed to take these conflicted NCAA insiders out of the decision-making process and give truly independent decision-makers the authority over these complex, high-stakes cases. And I just want to go through real quick the criteria that this referral committee has to look at to determine whether a case is suitable for the new independent adjudicatory process. There are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven factors that go into whether a case should be referred. One, cases involving major policy issues that may implicate NCAA core values and commitments to the collegiate model. Check. Clearly meets that. Two, stale or incomplete facts. Check. This conduct goes back to 2010. Three, Lack of acceptance of the core principles of self-governance, such as adversarial posturing or refusal to cooperate. Check, because the infractions staff and the enforcement staff found that this high-level football coach refused to cooperate. So that's clearly met. So first three are check, check, check. Four, actual or perceived misconduct by the involved parties. Yes. Check, 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 check. We're four down. Five, the scope, scale, and duration of the case and other factual complications. Yes, yes, yes. Six, breaches of confidentiality. I don't think that applied. And then seven, increased stakes, including potential penalties and other pressures driving institutional decision-making. Absolutely. So six of the seven criteria are met. And you could not imagine a more appropriate case for referral to this independent account accountability resolution process. And there's no explanation of why on December 17th, a couple of months later, the referral committee denied that request, denied that petition. So when the Committee on Infractions is explaining the procedural history of the case, they just run through that like they're just, you know, giving you the time of day. And there's no analysis of the appropriateness of this case for the referral and the basis for the denial of the re referral. And that is screaming for an answer, just screaming for an answer, particularly in light of the NCAA's action at its August 3rd, 2021 meeting, just a couple of weeks ago, to force the independent referral adjudicators, these independent decision makers, to accept the findings of the enforcement staff, the national office enforcement staff. And that's a massive change 
to what the Commission on College Basketball recommended, and it substantially undermines the whole purpose of that independent resolution process, and that is to give them the oversight and freedom and independence to not accept the garbage that comes out from the enforcement staff. <laughs> so there's something going on here. Not sure what it is. That was a really interesting component of this Baylor case procedurally. So the case is going to stay in the old process with all of its shortcomings. And then in January of 2020, a month later, the uh, Committee on Infractions panel was formally put together and assigned to hear the case. And they set a hearing date for late April of 2020. And there are seven members on this panel. The criteria for qualification for this panel is anything but independent. And I guess I'll go through that too. So who's authorized to sit on these panels? Let's see. Current or former college or university presidents or chancellors or other senior institutional administrators. Current, and that's for first category. Second category, current or former directors of athletics. Third category, former NCAA coaches. Fourth, representatives from conference offices. Fifth, institutional staff or faculty. Six, athletics administrators with compliance experience. And seven, members of the general public. <laughs> the panels can't be less than five members, more than seven, or more than seven members. There were seven members of this panel. Six of them were the NCAA institutional conference insiders. And there was one general public member, and he was an attorney, so that was good. But this is the very type of panel that the Commission on College of Basketball said was a problem. Yet, this is where it winds up. And that's not a personal criticism of these people. And actually, I think that they reached the right conclusion. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the decision itself. So the panel's put together and we're ready to go. We've got a hearing set for April of 2020. And what happens between January and April of 2020? Well, COVID. So college sports shuts down, higher education shuts down. And so they postpone the infractions process in this particular case because of COVID. Then in August of 2020, the Committee on Infractions informs the participants that they're going to have a virtual meeting in October. There's some pushback to that. And so the hearing's postponed until December of 2020. So it's the, the hearing is finally conducted on December 14th, 15th of 2020. And then, what, 10 months later, that's a pretty long gap here. I'm not quite sure what happened between December of 2020 and August 11th of 2021, there are some crucial things happening in big time college sports. And it's my belief this may tie into why this case wasn't referred outside of a process that the NCAA had complete control over. And that is that so many of these important things that happened. Remember, in December of 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court had just decided to take the Austin case. We're on the backside of the November elections. There's going to be a change in the administration. The NCAA is losing its power in the Senate. Its campaign for all these extraordinary federal protections and immunities is in jeopardy. And then you have the Georgia special elections that flips the Senate in January. Then you have an oral argument in March that's not very good for the NCAA in this Austin case. And then you have the NCAA completely screwing up the name, image, and likeness issue. And then we're heading into the summer of 2021, and the NCAA is trying to get something 
jump-started in Congress, at least to get preemption, and they get shut down on that. And then they botch the ability to try to stall the state laws from going into effect. And they come up with this ridiculous interim policy, which was just waving the white flag seven hours and 40 minutes before the July 1st deadline, when all these state no laws are going into effect. You had all of this repositioning by the NCAA Board of Governors and Mark Emmert and all this posturing and reframing and history rewriting. And then Robert Gates comes out of nowhere and he's the man. <laughs> Mark Emmert, I think they just stuffed him in a closet. And you have the Kaplan report coming out on August 3rd. So you have all this stuff happening. And you have to wonder wh when this decision was ready to go and whether the timing of the issuance of it wasn't influenced by some of the stuff that happened in late 2020 and throughout 2021. And as best I can tell, nobody in the media is asking those questions. But those are good questions to ask, particularly when we're talking now about a fundamental overhaul of the NCAA governance process and getting these responsibilities and authorities properly aligned. So let's get right into the report. And they have an introduction here, as you would expect, given the timing of this decision and the fact that it was going to get blowback because of the serious nature of the allegations and the fact that the NCAA had no jurisdiction to address them. And I guess I should say again, this is an important qualification. I do not believe that the NCAA has any business getting involved in anything that goes to institutional integrity. And whether that's academic integrity or whether that's the campus environment and the safety of the campus environment, those reside exclusively and properly with the institutions themselves. The NCAA has no business getting involved in those issues at the institutional level or telling institutions what they should or shouldn't do or telling institutions when they have violated their own standards or violated criminal law or violated federal civil rights statutes like Title IX and, and things like that. You, that is not the NCAA's role and it never should be the NCAA's role. And I would say to people who are saying the NCAA should have done something here, and this is true for all these cases from UNC to Penn State, Michigan State, and Baylor, that you do not want the National Collegiate Athletic Association being responsible for your academic integrity at the institutional level. If you're looking to the National Collegiate Athletic Association for guidance and enforcement of your principles of academic integrity at the institutional level, you need to resign. If you're working at one of those universities and you think this should be within the NCAA's wheelhouse, you just go ahead and just, you know, turn in your, your employee ID and your parking pass and just move on to something else because the NCAA would be the last agency or institution that you would go to, to try to enforce any principles of integrity in your backyard. That's just the long and short of it. And the same is true for any issues of gender equity or racial equity or campus violence or campus safety. You do not want the NCAA being responsible for those things. And if you really think that the NCAA should be coming in and looking over your shoulder or, or doing for you what you should be doing for yourself or second guessing what you do, Again, I mean, God bless you, but maybe you need to be in a different field. And in that regard, what we should be looking at 
are the lies that the NCAA has been telling through its propagandized view of all these principles and its constitution and all this advertising. Even today, in the face of this quest to align responsibilities with authorities, and I think the tacit admission that runs through this Baylor decision, that the NCAA doesn't have the responsibility or authority for legislating in these areas or enforcing in these areas. You have the NCAA on its website, its propaganda website, pumping out gender equity propaganda by the truckload. And they're not going to stop. And the reason they're not going to stop is because in the 21st century, virtue signaling on things that you have no intention of standing behind or acting consistent with is good business. It's just good business. And so the NCAA needs to keep pumping the, the propaganda to keep selling false promises, to keep lying to the public because its media partners and its corporate sponsors demand that. They're paying for a brand. They're paying for an idea. They're paying for a feeling. They're paying for an illusion. And that illusion has extraordinary market value. It's worth billions and billions of dollars every year. And that's what the NCAA is selling here. And they're not going to stop because they can't stop. And that's true in part because the NCAA's media partners, CBS, Turner, ESPN, they're all in the same game. They're all in the virtue signaling Olympics. And the NCAA is going to be on the medal stand every time there. And through these corporate partnership programs, like the Champions Program, where the NCAA and CBS and Turner team up with AT&T, Capital One, and Coca-Cola, and then the lower tier, the partners, you've got General Motors, Geico, Great Clips, Hershey's, Lowe's, Marriott, Pizza Hut, Uber, on and on and on. They are all in the same game. And if the NCAA comes out in this grand realignment between responsibilities and authorities and just says, look, all this garbage in the NCAA Constitution, and particularly Principle 2.3, the principle of gender equity. And again, this is under the Principles for Conduct of Intercollegiate Athletics. And this principle of gender equity is the only one that receives three additional subparts and is mentioned in another constitutional provision. So the gender equity is all over this Constitution. If the NCAA comes away from this realignment process and this constitutional convention and says, this is just absolute BS because these principles appear nowhere else in the 451-page NCAA Division I manual. What do you think the response would be among the NCAA's media partners and its heavy-hitting corporate partners? There would just be uh, panic and uh, synchronized desk dives. All these corporate partners and champions and yeah, some of the most big-time, heavy-hitting interests in the corporate world, all buying into this NCAA propaganda because that's essentially what it's purchasing and they have to reinforce it. They have to defend it. They are so deep into that propaganda that they become part of it. And that irony 
that hypocrisy got exposed in the Kaplan report because all of these long-term media contracts that the NCAA has with CBS and Turner and then these smaller contracts for non-men's basketball products through ESPN, those long-term contracts are hostile to gender equity and the development of women's basketball because women's basketball is held hostage to the interests built around men's basketball. So all this corporate preening, all this media partner preening, all this NCAA preening about gender equity is a cynical farce. And that cynical farce played out again in this Baylor report because there is no mention in this report of constitutional principle 2.3, the principle of gender equity. They can't go there. They can't look there because the NCAA has done nothing to put those principles into its legislation and make violations of those principles enforceable. So let's go ahead and take a look at this uh, report. So, okay, this first paragraph in the introduction is really interesting. And the way that they set this up, look, they're, they're trying to preempt criticism and they're a little defensive, but understandably because they're in a position where they're having to try to defend the indefensible. But the first sentence, the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions is an independent adjudicative body of the NCAA comprised of individuals from the Division I membership and public. Right off the bat, independent? Nah, not quite. I don't think the Commission on College Basketball sees that body as independent. And then later in this next paragraph, they describe themselves as a peer review membership body. Yep. And that's part of the problem. They go on. The COI decides infractions cases involving member institutions and their staffs. And they do a general description of the allegations. And then they say, but the allegations at the heart of this case centered on conduct never before presented to the Committee on Infractions. Namely, that Baylor shielded football student athletes from the institution's disciplinary process it failed to report allegations of abhorrent misconduct by football student athletes, including instances of sexual and interpersonal violence. Baylor admitted to moral and ethical failings in its handling of sexual violence on campus, but argued that those failings, however egregious, did not constitute violations of NCAA legislation. Ultimately, and with tremendous reluctance, this panel agrees. The panel goes on to say, because the conduct at the heart of this case is like no other conduct ever presented to the Committee on Infractions, this decision reads like no other decision released by this peer review membership panel. Many may find the panel's decision insufficient, but to arrive at a different outcome would require the Committee on Infractions to ignore the rules the association's membership has adopted, rules under which the Committee on Infractions is required to adjudicate. Such an outcome would be antithetical to the integrity of the infractions process. And before I go on with how the panel frames this case, I just want to make an observation about what I just read. The panel tries to pitch this Baylor case as a case of first impression. And that's a little misleading. The Penn State case involved similar issues. So did the Michigan State case in the sexual assault context. Although in those two cases, the assault occurred by university employees, not by student athletes. So there is a factual difference there. But the central issue here, and this was true also with the UNC case, is the extent to which 
the NCAA, through its infractions and enforcement process, can reach conduct that is not specifically the subject of NCAA legislation. In that sense, this is not a case of first impression, but it is unique in another important respect that the report doesn't talk about. And I'll just note, too, that nowhere in this 50-plus page decision does the panel make a reference to either the Penn State case or the Michigan State case. And I don't think that's just an accident. I think that was a purposeful omission. But when you look at the Penn State case, that was a case that got probably more media coverage than any other NCAA scandal in history. The conduct was so egregious and the apparent cover-up so widespread, at least that's how it was portrayed, that the public sentiment was so heavily weighed against Penn State. The NCAA stepped in and Mark Emmert and Donald Remy stepped in with all their ego and their bravado and their self-righteous chest pounding. And they just basically said, to hell with the enforcement and infractions process. We have so much leverage here that we could just come down and make up our own process and basically strong arm Penn State into a draconian consent decree that they're not going to challenge because they are too embarrassed to challenge it. And there were lawsuits that followed that Penn State case. And one was specifically targeted to the NCAA's bad actor behavior in the way that it refused to follow its own process, the way that it appeared to have cooperated behind the scenes with Louis Free, who the Penn State Board of Trustees had hired to do an internal investigation. This thing just had red flags all over it, and it smelled to high heaven, and the NCAA had to walk that back. But it's important there that that case can be distinguished because it never went through the enforcement and infractions process, and there weren't any independent fact findings. And the NCAA didn't have to address this fundamental problem that it has because the NCAA legislation couldn't have supported the enforcement and infractions action that the NCAA got through brute force and bluff and bluster in this consent decree. And there were behind the scenes communications that came out in some of the subsequent litigation that showed that people at the NCAA behind the scenes thought Emmert was out of control here and he was way out of bounds. And this, the action he was trying to, to get, the penalties he was trying to get in this consent decree could not have been gotten through the regular enforcement and infractions process because NCAA legislation doesn't address those issues. So in that Penn State case, the NCAA was not called to publicly defend the massive gap between these principles that it waves around and its inability to enforce them because they don't prioritize them in the actual NCAA legislation. So they kind of got a free pass on that. And then we come into the Michigan State case, and that case was resolved at the enforcement level. So that case never made it to the Committee on Infractions because in the initial fact-finding through this enforcement team at the NCAA National Office, they were looking at whether there was a cover-up, but the enforcement staff determined that there was no evidence of any cover-up, and even if there were, maybe we couldn't reach that conduct anyway. But that didn't require a formal decision because the decision of the infraction staff isn't a formal published opinion. What you get there is a NCAA press release and some BS like that. And you basically dodged the bullet. And because of the Penn State case, I think, and because of the litigation that followed and the fact that Emmert and Remy got nailed for 
grossly overstepping their bounds and just acting unilaterally outside of the NCAA's own processes. I don't think you were going to have that mistake repeated in the Michigan State case. So they tried to do it quietly and in a way that didn't draw a lot of public scrutiny. But remember, this was in 2018. And in 2018, the NCAA was really gearing up for its campaign in the Senate for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And this Austin case was moving through. Everything seemed to be moving in the NCAA's favor. And it was just business as usual for the NCAA bureaucracy. But the process, the way it played out in that Michigan State case, allowed them to divert attention from that fundamental problem in their governance model and in the way that they define their principles and then the way that they enforce or don't enforce them. So they weren't thinking about having to deal with this in an honest way because they weren't forced to. And that is a much, much different context from this Baylor case. So the reason that Baylor is important in my judgment and is truly distinguishable from Penn State and Michigan State is that in the summer of 2021, the NCAA for the first time is in such a position of weakness because it got its butt kicked in its Iron Throne campaign and in its campaign in the Senate. And it's taking a hit after hit after hit from a public relations standpoint. And now they are fighting for their life. They're fighting for relevance by the admission of Robert Gates and the NCAA national office. The NCAA is in a fight for relevance. And they have been brought to a point where they have no choice but to look honestly at this fundamental tension that's always existed between the principles they claim to hold and the refusal to enforce them. And now, for the first time in a published opinion, the NCAA infraction and process has to speak honestly and publicly about that and try to put together an argument and an analysis that explains away that uh, 70-year fraud. <laughs> and it is painful to read. So yeah, the panel was absolutely right when they said that this decision will read like no other. And it does, but I don't think for the reasons that the panel suggested. And so what I want to do now is look at how the panel applied NCAA legislation to these facts. I'm limiting this discussion only to the allegations of sexual misconduct, criminal conduct, and non-reporting of the sexual assault and interpersonal violence issues. And on those issues, the sexual misconduct and the criminal issues, the panel tried to get at that conduct in two ways. And the first relates to bylaw 16, which relates to awards, benefits, and expenses. And it's designed to regulate the provision of benefits for student athletes that are not available to the general student body. And the second way they tried to get at this was through the principle of institutional control. And I'm going to start with this bylaw 16. And before I get to how the panel analyzed the application of bylaw 16, I just want to go through a real quick and tell you what's contained in Article 16 on awards, benefits, and expenses. So it has a number of sub-provisions and the general areas that it regulates as impermissible benefits are awards. And those are just things that uh, schools can give or outside people can give to recognize achievement. The next category, complimentary admissions and ticket benefits. 
So free tickets. That's an extra benefit or potential extra benefit. Academic and other support services, that can be abused and that can constitute an extra benefit if it's not available to regular students. Medical expenses, that can be an extra benefit. Housing and meals, that can be construed as an extra benefit. Expenses for student athletes, friends, and family members, and that's been a hot button issue in terms of whether it's permissible for an institution to fly a kid's parents in who would otherwise not be able to afford to attend a game. Then expenses for entertainment, okay? Then expenses or benefits or payments provided by institutions for practice and competition. And then travel expenses provided by the institution. And then provision of expenses by people outside of the institution. And then gifts and services. And then expense waivers. Those are the areas covered by this bylaw, operating bylaw 16. Now, if you are wondering how in the hell you can try to fit sexual violence, interpersonal violence, and a cover-up of those crimes when they occur into NCAA legislation that governs whether a kid can accept a free meal, you are not alone. Bylaw 16 on extra benefits like many of the operating bylaws in the NCAA Division I manual, is driven to one thing and one thing only, and that is to preserve the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, to control the labor force, and to fix the cost of labor. That's it. So now let's go to the section where the panel explains its analysis under this impermissible benefits theory. So it's titled Impermissible Benefits in the Football Program, and they're talking about the non-reporting of the sexual assault issues. Here is what the panel says. In every infractions case, the Committee on Infractions Authority is limited by the legislation itself. As discussed above, the NCAA's member institutions have not adopted legislation regulating how institutions must respond to allegations of sexual and interpersonal violence involving student-athletes. Because there is no legislation specifically addressing conduct in this area, the enforcement staff charged this case under Bylaw 16. And that's the extra benefits bylaw I just read to you. Bylaw 16 governs benefits with Bylaw 16.11.2.1 providing the general rule that a student athlete shall not receive any extra benefit. The law defines extra benefit as any special arrangement by an institutional employee or booster to provide a student athlete or his or her family or friends with a benefit not expressly authorized by NCAA legislation. Along with the general prohibition, Bylaw 16.11.2.2 identifies specifically prohibited benefits, a loan of money, a guarantee of bond, an automobile, or use of an auto automobile, transportation, or signing or co-signing for a student-athlete's loan. Pursuant to bylaw 16.11.1.1, a benefit is not prohibited if it is generally available to the institution's students. The question presented to this panel was whether student athletes at Baylor who were accused of sexual or interpersonal violence were given an extra benefit in the form of more lenient treatment than other non 
athlete students at Baylor accused of similar wrongdoing. And before I go into how the panel weaseled out of this mess, I just want to point out that in the entire 451-page NCAA Division I manual, and all of these rules, these rules that go into granular detail on how to regulate the labor force, the cost of labor, the recruiting environment, and competitive advantage, disadvantage, this is the closest that the NCAA could come to finding a piece of legislation that might cover conduct that is among the most egregious conduct that the association is called upon to address. This is the equivalent of a federal prosecutor charging a rape case under an IRS law that regulates expense account padding. And this brings us back to, well, what's in the Constitution? If you're scouring the NCAA Division I manual for a way to reach this conduct, what language in that document comes closest to addressing this kind of behavior? And it's right here in the NCAA Constitution, Article 2, Principles for Conduct of Intercollegiate Athletics, Principle 2.2.3, Health and Safety. It is the responsibility of each member institution to protect the health of and provide a safe environment for each of its participating student athletes. And that could reasonably be read to include a safe environment for those who interact with the athletic community and the student athletes. Or principle 2.3, the principle of gender equity that I talked about earlier. And remember that in the initial review of this misconduct, this criminal behavior going back to 2010 and then in this 2010 to 2014 period, you had all this conduct. And then in 2014, Baylor started to take a look and it had this outside firm do a review. And then it had a couple of law firms do a review. And then a lot of other external regulators got into the act as well. But the initial focus of the inquiry was Baylor's commitment to and compliance with Title IX. That's gender equity. So you have the principle of gender equity. You have the compliance with federal and state law. That's sub 2.3.1. It is the responsibility of each member institution to comply with federal and state laws regarding gender equity. 2.3.2 NCAA legislation. Again, this is all under the, the principle of gender equity. The association should not adopt legislation that would prevent member institutions from complying with applicable gender equity laws and should adopt legislation to enhance member institutions' compliance with applicable gender equity laws. And then three, and this I think is right on point, 2.3.3, gender bias. The activities of the association should be conducted in a manner free of gender bias. And that was addressed in this Kaplan report. All three of those are a hell of a lot closer, actually, including the safety one. All four of those provisions are a hell of a lot closer to the conduct we're talking about here than a bylaw that regulates whether or not a kid can get a free meal or a free ticket. And the reason you don't see those provisions, those constitutional provisions, even identified in this Baylor decision is because there isn't any underlying legislation that makes those principles enforceable. There is no vehicle to take that principle into the enforcement process because the NCAA has refused to give those principles the force of law. Instead, as was the case in this McCants case that I talked about 
in the last episode. These are just nothing more than vague and hortatory proclamations urging people to aspire to do the right thing. And to put a sharper point on what the NCAA actually prioritizes in its governance process and its enforcement and infractions process, I went back to the Division I manual and did a little bit of back of a napkin math and determined that in that manual, when you take out the table of contents and then they have a bunch of charts and graphs and all that, you take all that stuff out and you look at the pages that have text and they're about 425 pages. And then you uh, do some sample word counts per page. And I did about 10 of those across the manual. The total number of words in that manual is in the neighborhood of 310,000 words. The phrase gender equity appears six times, six times in that 451-page document. The word gender appears 41 times in that 451-page manual. And most of those references occur in the table of contents or in the principles for conduct of intercollegiate athletics that I just read to you. They're not in the actual legislation that the NCAA puts into place and upon which its entire business model is built upon. And then you look at some other things. If you put in sexual assault or sexual violence or violence or assault or sexual harassment, you get zero, zero returns. And then on the flip side of that, when you type in infractions or penalty or violation or eligibility, you just get assaulted with returns. They're, those words are, and phrases are ubiquitous because that's all that this organization cares about. And all of those phrases relate to enforcing the amateurism-based compensation limit, which is controlling the cost of labor and the recruiting process and competitive advantage disadvantage. And there are harsh penalties or violations of any of those ridiculous, un-American, anti-competitive rules. So in its analysis of this impermissible benefit section, the panel says on the failure to report sexual assault and interpersonal violence, in applying bylaw 16 to the allegations involving sexual assault, interpersonal violence, and threats of violence, the panel considered two questions. First, is the non-reporting of allegations of sexual violence and the lack of adequate institutional response to such allegations within the scope of what the membership contemplated when it adopted bylaw 16? Second, assuming that such non-reporting constitutes a benefit within the meaning of bylaw 16, was it limited solely to athletics or did it occur across the wider campus community? And then the panel says this. This seven-member volunteer panel is not the appropriate body to answer the first question on behalf of the entire NCAA membership. To be clear, this is not a punt. The members of this panel understand that our voluntary service on the Committee on Infractions requires us to make difficult decisions, and we do not shy away from that responsibility. But a question of this magnitude in an area where the membership has not expressly legislated requires collective membership consideration. By not adopting legislation addressing campus sexual violence, the membership has decided that individual institutions should retain the responsibility 
and authority, along with law enforcement, to investigate and address allegations of sexual violence in the first instance. And when member institutions fail in this responsibility, the membership has signaled that law enforcement, government, and other regulatory bodies are the appropriate entities to investigate and hold institutions accountable. Any expansion of the NCAA's authority in this area is not a decision that should be made by the seven volunteer members of this panel on behalf of nearly 1,100 member institutions. And then the report goes on to that second portion, you know, even if there is an extra benefit here, was it limited to athletes? And they say no to that. So they answer that question, but they punt on the first question. And that's whether or not the non-reporting constitutes an impermissible benefit. And there are two problems with the way that they have handled that punt on the first question. The first problem is that they say that they can't issue a finding or make a determination on what the membership contemplated when it adopted bylaw 16. And that's just not the case. You can look at this bylaw and on its face, without any hesitation, say that this bylaw has absolutely nothing to do with the conduct at issue here. It was not intended to address the conduct at issue here. And trying to apply that bylaw 16 to the conduct at issue here is so absurd on its face that we're not even going to give that argument credence. And this panel could have said that outright, explicitly and boldly, that this bylaw 16 doesn't have a damn thing to do with what we're talking about here. And there's no reasonable issue about legislative intent here. So just say that out loud. And this goes really to the independence issue. And I wonder if this had gone through that independent alternative adjudication process that was the product of the Commission on College Basketball, what would this decision have looked like? And how would a truly independent panel have looked at the framing of this issue under Bylaw 16? And would they have just ripped it apart? Because this is the perfect opportunity to take the NCAA to task for the profound hypocrisy between the principles it claims to hold and those that it actually stands by and enforces. And then the second problem with this handling of the first issue is that the panel keeps referring to the membership and what the membership contemplated and what the membership wants and what the membership could do but hasn't done. The membership, the membership, the membership. What the hell is the membership? And you're back to the same finger pointing and the same problems that occur time and time again when the NCAA is forced to defend its decision-making and its governance process and its built-in conflicts of interest. And that is that it is a circular firing squad. And I believe that is in part by design. And Condoleezza Rice talked about that component of the NCAA business model in comments after the release of the Commission on College Basketball report. This is a circular firing squad argument. And the panel's pointing to this vague, vaporous membership of 1,100 schools, but that is not who calls the shot in big-time college sports. And this is a big-time college football issue, a big-time college sports issue. And it goes to the heart of the corruption in the business model. And it's money, money, money above principle. And in looking at that, the membership doesn't exist. The membership is irrelevant because those 1,100 schools do not stand on equal footing in the NCAA governance process, in the NCAA hierarchy, and true NCAA decision-making. 
And that goes back to big-time powerful football's hostile takeover of NCAA governance and the Power Five's takeover of its business interests. So the quote-unquote membership you're talking about here are 65 schools in the Power Five conferences or what's left of the Power Five conferences. There may be even fewer after realignment. And then the NCAA National Office and then CBS, Turner, ESPN, and then all their corporate partners. That's the membership. <laughs> That's the membership that is controlling the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And this panel can't come out and say that. So they hide behind the same BS that Miles Brand hid behind, that Mark Emmert hides behind, that the NCAA Board of Governors hides behind, and that key NCAA insiders hide behind. They're just doing the will of the membership, and this is a voluntary association made up of member institutions, and the member institutions have to go through this carefully considered and calibrated legislative process before any change is made, on and on and on, and that is absolute BS. And that has all been exposed in the summer of 2021. And then the second vehicle through which the panel tried to reach this conduct was through the principle of institutional control. And I talked a lot about this concept of institutional control in the early episodes when I was talking about what the NCAA is and who is responsible on, on paper. And that ties into this presidential leadership movement that really goes back to the 1920s. And the principle of institutional control is contained in the NCAA Constitution. It is in two places. It's in the Principles for Conduct of Intercollegiate Athletics. And actually, it's the first substantive principle under that article. And then there's a separate article devoted exclusively to institutional control. And that's the uh, Constitutional Article 6. And it talks about the importance of institutions being responsible at the institutional level. And I'll just read principle 2.1 from the Constitution. It says, it is the responsibility of each member institution to control its intercollegiate athletics programs in compliance with the rules and regulations of the association. The institution's president or chancellor is responsible for the administration of all aspects of the athletics program, including approval of the budget and audit of all expenditures. And that dovetails with another constitutional provision under the principle of rules compliance, and that's principle 2.8.1, which the panel also cited. And it says, each institution shall comply with all applicable rules and regulations of the association in the conduct of its intercollegiate athletics program. It shall monitor its program to ensure compliance and identify and report to the association instances in which compliance has not been achieved. In such instances, an institution shall cooperate fully with the association and shall take appropriate corrective action. Members of an institution, staff, student-athletes, and other individuals and groups representing the institution's athletics interests shall comply with applicable association rules and the member institution shall be responsible for such compliance. So what do we note about those lofty principles? They are all tied back to the same issue you had with the impermissible benefits structure. 
and this bylaw 16. And that is there has to be some underlying rule or regulation that goes directly to the conduct that you're trying to enforce. You can't be out of compliance with your rules or be engaging in conduct that constitutes a lack of institutional control if the NCAA doesn't legislate in that area. And the panel used the same basic structure that it used for the impermissible benefits analysis. And the panel says, the panel's analysis of the institutional control allegations started from the same point, i.e. the absence of underlying NCAA violations. And again, we're talking about the sexual misconduct, the criminal misconduct issues here. The panel says, as alleged in the notice of allegations, however, the lack of institutional control allegations were based solely on the underlying impermissible benefits allegations. And because the panel essentially concluded that this impermissible benefits bylaw, bylaw 16, had absolutely nothing to do with conduct relating to sexual violence and sexual assault and criminal behavior, then there simply wasn't any piece of underlying legislation that you could tie these constitutional provisions of institutional control to. And that is a fundamental flaw in this entire NCAA House of Cards. And then the panel goes on to this next level of analysis, and that is assuming that there had been a way to tie this to some underlying NCAA legislation. Was this conduct limited to athletics? And here the panel says something that I think is really interesting. And it says, in the most literal sense, it appears that Baylor lacked institutional control. But Constitution 2 and 6 address the control of an institution's athletics program. Thus, it is not clear to the panel that these constitutional provisions are intended to reach the kind of widespread institutional failings that are at issue in this case, even when some of those failings occurred within the institution's athletics department. And that was really the primary issue in the UNC academic fraud case. What this points out, and the reason that this decision is significant is that it has to walk through these analyses that are so ridiculous on their face because they simply shine a light on the NCAA's hypocrisy. That's what this comes down to. And now the NCAA is having to deal with it head on. That's where we are now with this constitutional committee. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about where that stands here uh, in the next episode or so. I'm not going to commit to what I'm going to do exactly the next episode. But there's some other things I want to talk about. I want to talk about this decision at the August 3rd Board of Governors meeting to pull back on the independence of the independent accountability resolution process. That's really important because it suggests to me that the NCAA is just doing what it does best. And that's trying to keep people who have truly independent judgment and insights from being part of the business model or, for, or from getting even close to the business model. That's their worst nightmare. They don't want people to know what's really going on behind the administrative veil and the NCAA. And there's some great examples of that that I'll probably address at some point down the line too. So we'll keep an eye on what's happening with this constitutional committee. And with that, we'll go ahead and close this thing out. So I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.